Hey everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Comp. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the seventh My Angular Story. This week, we're going to get the story of Dylan Johnson. Uh, Dylan was on episode 75 of Adventures in Angular, talking about future-minded uh, JavaScript and Angular. Um, Dylan, you want to kind of give us an idea of who you are and what you're doing these days? Sure, absolutely. Um, my name is Dylan Johnson. I work at a company called Capital One, um, which is a, a financial firm. Um, live in Richmond, Virginia. I've been programming for uh, about six years now. Um, come from a different background, so um, only got introduced to, to programming about six years ago. Um, and in that time, I've gotten the opportunity to work on a lot of great Angular apps, as well as um, some API layer stuff and DevOps stuff. So um, primarily JavaScript engineer, part-time uh, DevOps enthusiast. Awesome. This is the stuff we like. This is the stuff we're digging into in these. So I'm, I'm excited to hear it, especially since, um, and I keep saying this on this on these episodes, but then I interview yet another person who got programming at the age of like six months, right? They, they right. Got, yeah, they've been programming before they could talk. And yeah, it just, it feels like, okay, so you have to be some kind of prodigy genius. And you're, you're talking like, oh, I got into program six years ago, which is relatively recent. Uh, compared to some of the other people that have been on the show, but yet you know you're you're successful. You're working at Capital One. Things look really good. So why don't you tell us that story? How did you get into programming? Sure, sure. And it's uh, it's kind of an, an interesting story, and it it really is interesting to me when I talk to my colleagues that um, the the discipline of software engineering uh, lends itself to people coming from different backgrounds. And I was having a conversation with a colleague today about how people kind of arrive at software engineering as a career um, uh, down a different route than other careers. So it really is a, a meritocracy and it really is um, an area where people can come from, from different backgrounds or different uh, experiences. So in my case, um, I graduated college at the beginning of uh, 2010 and the first year out of college, I worked at a uh, marketing firm, um, actually working with Domino's Pizza and Pizza Hut franchisees, um, designing their marketing programs and servicing those marketing programs. So we would print postcards, um, print mass saturation mail, um, and we'd run programs for people to, to market their stores. And what I discovered when I was working there was um, a lot of those franchisees own um, a large number of stores. And the way that they were um, decisioning their budget allocation um, was uh, somewhat arbitrary. So um, they knew the market size um, and they knew like how important that store was to their portfolio. So if they had 20 stores, they may say, you know, this one I'm going to spend $400 a week and this one I'm going to spend $500 a week on marketing. Um, 
IBM has built very uh, advanced point of sale systems for for Domino's. So the amount of data that those companies have is is uh, really impressive. And so I started digging around and uh, figuring out what data they had available to them and built this um, crazy Excel template that would pull um, pull data from their point of sale systems and uh, millions of rows in the spreadsheet um, and use pivot tables to uh, derive information that would help them uh, more effectively allocate their budget. Um, so you have millions of rows in the spreadsheet and you click the button to pivot the pivot table and you know the machine locks up for, for 30 seconds while it's figuring out what to do and now you have your new information. So um, that, that happened over the course of, of, of a year at that company, but the, the algorithm um, and at this point in my career, I, I did not know what an algorithm was, <laughs> but I had essentially implemented an, an algorithm in this Excel template um, that turned out to be very successful, helping people um, allocate their budget more effectively, looking at things like, well, if you're in a college town, you probably don't want to advertise in the summer months or, you know, if there's. Um, a store that has a lot of competition in the area, you probably want to spend more money there compared to a store um, that has less competition in the area. And so at the end of that year, um, that algorithm was very successful. People were very happy with it. And um, I knew there had to be a better way than using an Excel template because it was, you know, making the fan on my machine go crazy. And um, it was a, a very rudimentary manual process to do that data processing. So I decided to uh, quit my job there selling and servicing marketing plans and uh, figured I'd take, you know, three, four months to learn how to code. And then I would start my own data-driven marketing firm. Um, and what I discovered in that process was that um, it takes a little bit longer than three or four months to learn how to code. Um, and so I was taking uh, contracts doing uh, everything from, you know, front-end work, basic HTML, CSS, um, I was doing some vector illustration, designing logos, um, designing print pieces. Um, I, I was taking any job that, that I could get um, and, and taking contracts. I did some low-level C programming, and I was kind of learning on the job as I, as I was working on all of these things um, and found that my goal slowly morphed away from um, starting a firm um, and into becoming a really good software engineer and understanding all the layers of the stack, um, figuring out how ideas get from the, the room where, where you're talking with uh, your colleagues working on a project to actually being on the screen um, that, that the user is interacting with. That's awesome. Um, I don't know if I've told anyone this, but I actually own a website or a domain and it's kill all spreadsheets. And when I was doing <laughs> software consulting, that that's essentially what I wanted to do was just get in there and say, do you have a spreadsheet that you can't live without, but makes you want to slit your wrists? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, we'll, we'll make it into a no brainer software. But yeah, that's really interesting. And it's funny, too, because a lot of people think, uh, you know, the Excel jockey, right? Or that they're not real programmers, but in a very real sense, they are. I mean, some it, of the most some of the most sophisticated algorithms and business logic I have ever seen reside in Excel templates. Um, and people may not refer to those things as algorithms, um, but it, really impressive stuff that um, it, it, it's funny that recently, um, you know, the, the prominent example that people have used to try to explain reactive programming or a prominent example people have used is spreadsheets. 
They, they, you, you change one variable, you change one cell value and due to the, um, formulas that you've set up, um, it is instantly reflected in, in all of the other cells. Um, so spreadsheets are, yeah, you know, a, a rudimentary thing and have bad connotations in, um, a programming sense, but also, um, are a tool that people have, have done some really impressive things with. And, and also it, you know, has, has good analogs, um, or, or analogies to kind of where the, the programming, especially UI programming world, um, is moving. Um, I kind of, kind of veered off there and, and hoped I didn't go too far down a rabbit hole, but, uh, spreadsheets are, it's really interesting to see what people do with them. Um, and, uh, kind of look at the, the, the programming patterns that manifest themselves, uh, through spreadsheets. Well, and the, the thing that I think is interesting that you get from spreadsheets as opposed to traditional programming, I guess I would say, is that in a lot of cases, what you see in the spreadsheet is all of the intermediate values. So right. it's, it's take all of this st stuff, munge the data, and then put the value in this cell and then grab all of those results and do this other stuff with it and put that in this cell. And so, right. you know, you, you kind of have this visual cascade if you're paying attention to what draws on what draws on what to get you your answer. And yeah, um, I, I kind of wish we had that kind of a, a visual medium for tracking how things propagate through our own systems for debugging and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually asked at NGConf last year, asked the uh, Wrangle crew to put a feature in Augury that uh, would, um, I don't know if you're familiar, if you've seen the show paint rectangles um, feature in Chrome, where uh -huh. you're trying to debug a performance issue and you want to see which parts of the screen are painting at a given time. Um, I asked them to to do that for change detection in Angular 2. So show change detection rectangles um, with mm. the whole... On push idea, you know, you can cut off branches of your change detection uh, tree um, if you're doing things smartly. So I thought that would be a very interesting feature. Uh, ho hopefully it's on their backlog somewhere. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. So, uh, so yeah, so you went from spreadsheets to, oh, I understand these algorithms and I see that there's a value here. So I'm going to start doing that to... You know, I just want to be a coder. I don't necessarily want to run a marketing agency anymore. And I just want to draw some parallels there between that and what a lot of other people have said. They got into programming and they figured out that they could build something that mattered to somebody else, that made a difference, that made work easier, that, you know, cut some process short that was just painful. And that's what really drew them in. And it sounds like you're no different. It's just oh, wow, somebody could use this or, oh, I have people actually using this and they can do their job or do their job better. And and that's right. the payoff. Oh, well, I want to do more of that. Yeah, yeah. And there was this, it was almost, uh, I, I don't mean to be grandiose or anything, but it was almost like a profound experience for me when I discovered that what I really enjoyed was not having a solution to a problem. It was problem solving. The actual act of, you know, figuring out what what someone wants an application to do, what they're trying to to build 
technologically and and digging in, putting my hands on the keyboard and building the solution was way more satisfying and engaging than than having the solution and leveraging the solution. So um, that that was a profound, um, impactful experience for me when I, you know, had this opportunity to work on a bunch of different projects and uh, see the results of those projects, but then have this itch to go work on the next one, if you know what I mean. Like, uh, it's not about, you know, enjoying the product, it's about building the product. Um, and that was a real shift uh, for, for me and kind of where I thought my career was heading and where my, my career ended up taking me. It, yeah, it's almost like, a, oh, this is how the world works. Oh, this is another <laughs> way the world works. Um, it, you know, it's, it's that exploration that, that, I don't know, that guided or maybe just the discovery, not necessarily even guided, but just that process of, of figuring something new out. Right. Right. That's interesting. So how, how do you go from, uh, you know, spreadsheets to C and PHP and whatever else you were working in to doing JavaScript and Angular? Sure, sure. So um, I, I was doing JavaScript pretty early on in my career, but pretty classic, um, you know, jQuery situation. Um, I was actually writing writing some Word uh, WordPress plugins at that point, um, writing a lot of it's funny that this is only five or six years ago, but writing a lot of um, PHP that would like embed, it would inline jQuery and then serve that up as an HTML document to to the front end. And that that always felt really wrong, right? And like JavaScript at that point was a thing that people used like to maybe slide a div around the screen when somebody clicked something as opposed to a real application uh, language, at, at least in, in what I was exposed to at that point. Um, but then in 2013, um, I had gone uh, beyond kind of the uh, the contracting with a bunch of different firms at the same time. I had taken a full-time gig at an education company, um, and we had a green field um, to rebuild an existing application, but also build a platform on, uh, on which uh, three or four more applications could be built. Um, so mid 2013, I, I had heard of Backbone and Knockout um, at that point. I had heard and seen Angular um, thrown around a little bit, and uh, but I had, had no idea what it really was. Um, but I took the opportunity at that point with the green field to uh, research and compare different frameworks and and really dig in and see kind of what what was the best foundation to to set for this company and it became quickly uh, apparent to me that the angular was um a little bit different than the other frameworks so so backbone had some elements of data modeling for you and knockout had some elements of data binding for you um but angular put some real structure around um you know the the simple process of of grabbing some data from a, a server and then and putting that into a, a template and binding that data, so um, it, it became pretty quickly apparent that 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 Angular was a, a different framework, and I, I was hooked at that point. Um, so I went in and sold a very small education company, but I went in and sold Angular as the the future of our web applications at that 
that company. And, um, from there, um, you know, we, we all started writing angular, um, and I, I really, uh, got to enjoy it. Um, but that was, so, so mid 2013, I don't know if it was like one O or one, one, um, that was available at that point. It definitely like it was pre one three there, there was no controller as, and in that company, um, you know, we fell into all the pitfalls, um, you know, too much root scope usage, um, using events to pass data between different contexts. And, um, just, uh, I think it's Ben Nadell maybe, or, or somebody else has an infographic. That's the line graph of, of learning angular, um, where, you know, you get this, Oh, this is awesome. And the line is trending upwards. And then it just goes straight down and you're very mad at angular. And then the line goes up <laughs> further and you're like, Oh, this is awesome again. And then you discover the next thing that's just really, really blows your mind. Or, you know, you, you discover you went down a, a, a path that maybe you shouldn't have. So, um, had great learning experience there, got pretty proficient in angular. Um, and then in early 2014 joined a different company, um, where we built uh, a couple applications that, um, I'm actually extremely proud of. Um, unfortunately they are not public facing. Um, so we can't show off our work, but, um, one application in particular has gotten, uh, industry awards for the last couple of years is, uh, really advancing. Um, I was at a financial company at that time as well. Um, and really advancing how financial advisors, um, service their clients. Um, so, I was working on on that project when I joined the new company and had an opportunity to work with um, uh, Cliff Myers, um, who was consulting with that company at that time and is now working on uh, Blue Ocean, which is the new Jenkins UI. Um, so he works at CloudBees, um, working on Blue Ocean, and he uh, kind of leveled me up, um, you know, taught me things that uh, just instantly made me more effective at writing angular code, um, and learned quite a bit from him. Um, and then kind of, so, so at that point in my career, I was really trying to pursue full stack. Um, you know, and I still do some, some full stack stuff at this point, but I wanted to have mastery of every layer of the stack. And only when I saw kind of some of the techniques that Cliff was teaching me and kind of how, how broad, um, the, the topic of angular and JavaScript was that I realized that this is an area that like I can specialize in and I can provide a lot of value to this organization by, you know, really beefing up my, my angular knowledge. So, um, hope, hopefully I didn't veer too far from the question there, but that's kind of how I, I went from, you know, dabbling in front end development to kind of knowing what angular was, but not being really good at it. Um, and then uh, discovering that it, it was an area that could uh, could provide a lot of uh, interest and value for me in, in my career. That's fascinating, <laughs> honestly. Um, it, your your discussion over uh, Ben Nadal's um, infographic, or, or if it's not his, you know, whoever's it is. I remember sitting down and I was talking to a friend of mine named Eric. Um, in fact, he's the one that actually. You know, he played a he played a role in my getting into podcasting in the first place, even though he wasn't a podcaster. But anyway, uh, we were talking, and uh, he was working for a local company called Instructure, and uh, they built their entire front end in Ember. And mm. um, <clears throat> it was funny because we were chatting, and he basically said, "Yeah, you know, you kind of go through the honeymoon phase with uh, any front end framework, 
And, you know, so everybody was gung ho about Ember and loved Ember and Ember was the thing. And we, you know, we think it's the greatest. And then you go through the productivity phase where you're still patting yourself on the back. and We're getting all this stuff done and we really kind of get what the, the framework's doing for us. And isn't this wonderful? He's like, and then you go through the phase where, okay, we just ran into the first thing that this framework doesn't do exceptionally well. And so mm-hmm. we work around that and then we work on another problem. And pretty soon it's like, oh, this stupid framework doesn't do anything. <laughs> right. And that's that drop off that you were talking about where it's like, crap, I hate this thing. I just I just needed to do that one thing and I won't do that one thing. Right. And, you right. Know. In, an, in an angular world, it can actually be like so in angular world and react world, um, you know, there are people out there building components, open source components that, that do a thing for you that um, a lot of people are, are, are using in enterprise environments. So sometimes it's not even the framework. Like I know there was a, a UI bootstrap was, is an awesome project, um, uh, leveraged it heavily um, and got a lot of value out of it um, in the, the Angular One apps that I built to my previous employer. Um, but there was this, this bug with the date picker where like weird things were going on with, with time zone conversion. And at that point, I'm not, you're, you're not even fighting the framework. You're fighting a third party component that was built on top of the framework. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of like a a mind melt, you know, figuring out where, where the bug actually exists. Is it in my code? Is it in the framework code? Is it in the the third party component code? So um, yeah, there's definitely kind of this, this, uh, like you said, this, this honeymoon phase where you're like, oh my goodness, look how great this data binding magic is. Um, and then you discover like, this is a really hard problem to solve. And I don't, I, sometimes I don't even know where, where to start looking. Yep, absolutely. And I think, I think the people who really get deep into the frameworks and then, yeah, they work in that problem that pushes them up against that wall. They're the ones that go out and then they create another framework. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, they go and get really gung ho about, you know, the uh, different framework that's already out there because it it solves that particular problem very nicely. Um, right. But I also and I, I get flack for this sometimes, but I'm, I'm also I firmly believe that if a framework gets wide adoption, it probably solves 90 percent of the problems really well. And so until you get out on the fringe of, of what that 90 percent is you can be very happy living in that land for a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, uh the, the classic story of building an, an enterprise angular one application, right? You get, um, the, the data binding magic and maybe you're doing some things that aren't necessarily clean code, like, you know, passing data between controllers with events, or, you know, you've got manual dollar watches wired up in a bunch of your controllers, but it's okay because everything is working for the first four or five months of development. And then you get to a point where, you know, with the, the change detection model of, of Angular 1, where uh, everything just slows to a crawl. And if you have not encountered that before, if you're not equipped to really dig into the source of, of, of Angular, or uh, if you haven't used dev tools extensively before, it, it's a tough problem space, right? Where all of a sudden you have this application that's that's meeting its business requirements, but because you've you've added more features and functionality, all of a sudden it really starts to slow down. Um, and that that experience was uh, was very interesting and really kind of 
made me think about, you know, the, the real patterns, uh, not, not abusing what Angular allowed you to do and this data binding magic that it gave you. Um, but thinking about things like, you know, am I, uh, being efficient in the number of, of loops that my digest cycle is going to require? Um, how should these, these components, uh, share data, with with one another, um, that was a really uh, uh, prominent. It, it's a really prominent memory for me in my Angular journey, where I went from you know building applications that worked to kind of really understanding the implications of of how I was leveraging the framework. Yep. So the next question that I typically ask is, what contributions have you made in the Angular community that people should go look at? <laughs> well, in in my case, I'm not really really known or or haven't done a whole lot of um, like after ngconf two years ago, I went home and immediately um, uh, cloned the repo and and found a documentation uh, typo and and submitted a a patch for that documentation typo. But um, you know, I I haven't had the opportunity. Um, in my career to do a whole lot of open source work. So there's not like a lot that people would find uh, uh, about me or, or find uh, not a lot of contributions that people can look to for, for my work in the open source world. Um, the, uh, I co-organized the, the Richmond, uh, the RVA JS uh, meetup group, which is kind of cool here in Richmond, Virginia. Um, I recently gave a talk about, um, you know, Angular 2 went final. Let's talk about the big picture and um, what it means to you. Um, so I'm pretty involved in, in the local community here in Richmond um, from, from a, a JavaScript perspective. Um, and I guess if you asked my colleagues or, or people that I work with what I'm known for, um, it's probably being uh, really annoying about testing um, and how we test our software. Um, I knew I liked you. (laughs) (laughs) I, I'm a big, big advocate of, uh, behavior driven development. Um, I'm going to deviate here and and hopefully go down a path that's interesting to somebody, but the, the, uh, my, my degree from, from school is from the English departments and I majored in, in film theory. Um, so written language, um, is, uh, a very important discipline to me and plain language, plain given when then statements in the case of end to end tests or it should statements in the case of, of unit tests with a, a framework like Jasmine, um, really helped me kind of wrap my mind around, um, writing good code, like test driven developments with, behavioral descriptions where I'm only trying to accomplish this small thing and then I'm going to accomplish the next small thing and it is legible and understandable to me um, is is something that I'm very passionate about. And I I work with um, a lot of engineers who have have come to software engineering from different backgrounds or, you know, are, are junior engineers and they're trying to get up to speed. And that's something that I, I consistently preach to them is, um, you know, writing good tests and testing your software well will make you an infinitely better uh, software engineer uh, and make you understand the objective of the work that you're doing uh, much better. So that's that's something that I'm, I'm pretty well known for within uh, at least my my professional group. 
Well, if that's you preaching, you got some hallelujahs for me because I'm right there with you. So, <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. The other things that I talk about a lot are um, so functional programming. Um, uh, I guess two and a half years ago or something, um, read why functional programming matters. I don't remember where I saw the link, but the the paper from the eighties where, um, uh, John Hart is writing, you know, uh, about functional programming and, and teaches you about fold left and fold right. And the idea of pure functions. And it, it just struck a real chord with me. I, I kind of flashed back to, uh, like algebra one class, right? So if, f of x equals x plus 2, then you can tell me what f of 2 is. But if f of x equals y plus 2, then you can't tell me what uh, f of 2 is. And that that kind of like f- uh, flipped a, a switch for me. The, the light bulb went off about pure functions and uh, the, the same input always driving the, the same output. Um, so functional programming is something that I, I, I advocate to, again, the engineers that I train, um, and functional JavaScript by Michael Fogus, um, where he talks about underscore and, and how underscore is useful, um, is, is something that I recommend everybody reads. Um, and it really kind of, uh, uh, changed the way that I thought about programming UIs instead of maintaining a whole bunch of state everywhere and having to know which state I needed to synchronize at a given time. Just pass your state through through pure functions and um, you're, you're always going to get the same output. So that's probably if, if you ask somebody that worked with me, uh, what does Dylan talk about all the time? Um, you'd probably hear about test, <laughs> testing, testing, functional programming, and maybe a little RX or NGRX. Nice. All right. Well, um, what are you working on these days? So uh, right now I'm working on um, helping uh, – the, the organization that I work in is is huge, right? Um, it's at a scale – I started at Capital One probably five months ago, and the organization is a scale that, that I was not familiar with. It's a very big organization, um, but – the uh, application, the main application that we work on is an Angular 1 application. Um, and the organization knows that that's, that's not going to work for us two, three years from now. Um, so we're working on um, figuring out how we take our, our a big Angular 1 application that is providing a whole bunch of value to our customers and what is the right strategy for uh, migrating things. Do we try to do the big bang? Do we try to migrate the whole thing at once? Or do we, you know, find opportunistic places to migrate individual features? Do we use ng upgrade? Do we not use ng upgrade? Those sorts of things is, is, uh, the, that's what I'm, I'm heavily involved with on, on a daily basis. Um, and then also trying to figure out how, um, you know, when we do make this switch, there's there's a big learning curve when an organization decides to go from Angular 1 to Angular 2 because it's not or Angular. I guess we're not saying Angular 2 anymore. Um, when you decide to go to, to future facing Angular, it's not just about the framework. It's about TypeScript. It's about decorators. It's about a whole new paradigm of, of how you think about writing applications. So another thing that I'm heavily involved with is uh, figuring out how we prepare people for that transition. How do we um, not stop the world um, and continue delivering business value while also equipping our engineers with the skills that they need to write um, 
future facing applications. So it's actually pretty similar to the the role that I had at my last uh, employer. Um, but in that case, I came home from NGConf 2015 and told everybody it was uh, time to go to Angular 2 uh, right then and there. Um, so I think it was like Alpha 12 when we <laughs> we started going to Angular 2 there. Uh, so that was a very bumpy road. Um, you know, I think the the RCs gave us a little a little heartburn. Uh, you know, ng module flying in late in the the Angular two uh, 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 betas and RCs was a was an interesting thing to deal with. But uh, yeah, that's that's what I've been working on for probably the past year is playing the role of you know going and talking to stakeholders and and thought leaders and senior leaders in the 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 business side of the world the people that have p and l pro- profit and loss responsibility about hey this is why we need to to do this thing that may seem purely technical this is why it matters for us going forward and figuring out how to how to take all these people that have have uh, really started to feel like they know angular one and uh, gently pull the rug out from <laughs> underneath them and help them make the transition to to developing on the new platform. Uh, I hope, I hope that answers the question. All right. Well, um, I'm kind of curious if people want to see what you're up to these days or get a feel for, um, what you're talking about on Twitter or things like that, where, where do they go? Do they just follow you on GitHub or Twitter or there are better places? Do you have a blog? Um, I, I have a domain, and I'm just the worst procrastinator in the world. So I've had the, the domain dylanjohnson.com for a couple years and just haven't put anything up there. Um, uh, I, I don't, I don't do uh, Twitter very, very often. Um, email me. Um, <laughs> okay. So e- email me. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. Dylan Johnson at, at outlook.com is a, a good way to reach me. And I'm always, I, I'm very excited. NGConf is coming up. I, I do, uh, like to meet people and hear about what they're working on. So I hope, um, you know, I do get in touch with some people as a result of, of having this conversation. So, um, I probably need to do a better job of my social media situation. So it's easier to get in touch with me, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, uh, you know, if anybody's interested in in learning more about uh, the the journey and my my Angular story, feel free to reach out uh, via email, and uh, I'd love to chat about it. All right. Well, um, the last stage that we have in this process is the picks. Uh, do you have some picks? Some things you want to shout out about? Do you have some picks? I do. Do you want me to pick first? Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the first thing I'm going to pick out, um, I've had, I've had a few people ask me, you know, different questions about my podcasting setup. So I'm just going to pick a few things there. I, I'm pretty sure I picked my podcast mic um, last week, though it could have been on a JavaScript Jabber episode because in reality this is the fourth interview like this I've done today. So um, <laughs> on my setup, I'm using a Zenix 802. Uh, not router. What is it? A mixer. Um, so uh, I, I'm really, really liking that. Um, it's just an eight channel mixer. I have a 16 channel mixer, but I only ever use the 
the first two channels. <laughs> Basically, that was uh, the first channel's me and my beautiful RE20 microphone, and the second channel is off of my computer. So since I don't need more than two channels, unless I add like a soundboard or something, and then it'll be three, or if I do something really fancy, then I'll need more. Um, that's what I'm going to pick is is the Zenix 802 microphone or microphone mixer. Um, I also, when I bought my RE20 microphone, um, I actually bought the kit on Amazon, which includes an RA um, boom arm. And I've, I've had other boom arms in the past. And the problem that I have with them basically comes down to the clamp that they use to clamp them to your desk. Um, if you get anything that clamps to your desk, it usually has the same kind of clamp where you screw it in from the bottom. And then um, it's kind of on a hook, and then it's got a part that slides over your desk. Well, this RA microphone arm actually has a really big base you can either screw into the desk, which I didn't really want to do because this is a brand new desk and it's gorgeous. Um, but it also has a clamp on it, just like those others. The difference is, is because it has that giant base that sits on top of your desk. Um, and then it has a really wide um, piece that you use to clamp on on the bottom. Um, it doesn't move. And so it doesn't wiggle loose like the other one did. And I am just loving this thing. The other thing I really love about it is that there is a... Um, what, maybe a foot and a half uh, uh, arm on the base, and then the boom arms uh, goes into a spot on the top of that. And so what that does is it puts the boom arm up about a foot, foot and a half above my desk when it where it starts. And so I don't have my microphone hanging at some weird angle when I'm sitting here talking to people like Dylan. And so I don't have to keep adjusting it. It's not in a weird place. And when I want to fold it up, I'm not folding it up and having it cockeyed over in a weird spot because it's up so high, it just kind of folds up nicely at a really nice angle so it's out of the way. And so nice. I've got I've got that boom arm. I can't say enough nice things about it, um, but I'll put links to both of those in the show notes and just, just super duper nice. And if you're buying the RE20, just get the boom arm with it because it also comes with a shock mount. Um, and the shock mount is what isolates it, um, from the desk. Um, if you don't have a shock mount, what happens is when you bump the boom arm or bump the desk, the vibrations travel up the arm and then down into the microphone. And so you'll hear it kind of go for a minute, <laughs> but with the, the shock mount, it doesn't do that. Um, it's got these elastics on it that absorb the shock for the microphone. And so the microphone doesn't wind up vibrating. Um, and, and since I got the whole kit, I got everything and it just fits in nicely. It's really great. So, yeah, so my, those are my picks with that. And then finally, the last thing I'm going to pick related to audio equipment is I like having a pop filter. Um, and the, what a pop filter is, is it's kind of like, um, it's got some mesh, uh, fabric on it and I'm speaking through the pop filter into the microphone. And that way, when I make the p -p or b sound. Um, it doesn't have this blast of air that hits the microphone. In fact, when I was doing it, the pop filter was actually um, moving just a little bit because it was absorbing that big blast of air. So if I move it out of the way and do a you can hear that um, my breath is hitting the, the microphone directly. Now, this sounds a little bit better without the, um, the pop filter in the way, but the difference is, is when I'm actually talking about programming 
or um, something like that. You know, I, I get a lot more S's and P's. And um, and so anyway, the, the pop filter helps mitigate some of that. And that way I don't get the, the breathy sounds into the microphone. So yeah, this one cost me about $6 and I just clipped it onto the boom arm and then it just kind of hangs down in front of the microphone and it works great. Um, on the Heil PR40, they actually have one that clamps around the microphone and it's really small. So it's, it's a little less in the way, but it didn't fit onto this one. So I had to get a new one and this has been working great. So anyway, um, just a few things, cause I have people ask about the, the podcasting stuff. Um, Dylan, do you have some picks yeah, for us? Yeah. Well, yeah. But, but before I go there, it really, it really does make a difference. You know, uh, I, in, in college, I used to play music and record music and you don't realize how important things like a pop filter are, um, until you listen back to your recordings or, um, the importance of having uh, a stand that, that can stay out of your way, but also get the microphone to a good position. So that's, uh, that's really cool stuff. And it's cool to hear from somebody that spends, uh, uh, a, a lot of hours, um, re recording podcasts and, and sound for other people to hear. Um, my picks, um, uh, recently I've, uh, been focusing on, um, trying to become a better leader. Um, so from a technical perspective, I'm very confident in, in what I know about, uh, developing angular one apps or, uh, new angular apps, um, and can dive into anything, but, um, I also uh, manage a number of people now, and that's something that doesn't come as naturally to me. So I, I'm really focused on, on trying to do a good job there. So, um, rather than reading, uh, all technical books, um, I've been mixing in, um, some, some books that can help me understand and, and be more thoughtful and mindful, um, about trying to lead people well. Um, so good to great, uh, Jim Collins, uh, why some companies make the leap and others don't is the subtitle. Um, really fascinating, um, uh, analysis and, and, um, inspection of, of thousands of cases where, um, you know, fi figuring out what makes groups of people successful, what makes ideas successful, um, and how to, you can have the best idea in the world, but if you don't mobilize behind it and you don't have support and buy-in from everybody that you're working with, um, you know, that, that, that idea is not going to go anywhere. So, um, that's been a great book. Um, this is kind of corny, uh, but I, over the holidays really got interested in, there's a, a coach in college football named, uh, PJ Fleck, who, uh, was coaching Western Michigan last year, I believe, and is, is moving to Minnesota. Um, he had a, a philosophy that he preaches to, uh, his team called row the boat. Um, look it up. It's, it's, uh, it's just, it will draw you in. It's a fascinating way to uh, unite people behind a common goal that is applicable not only to the, the football space, um, but also to um, the, the professional space or, or, or anywhere where you are trying to unite a group of people uh, behind a common goal, row the boat. Um, is a, a very interesting philosophy. And the last, the last thing I'll pick um, is uh, the Narwhal blog. Um, so, uh, Jeff crosses and Victor Savkin's, um, blog where they're, they're putting up just a ton of, uh, great content that is, um, uh, concise and valuable and insightful, um, that can really help you, um, write better, 
uh, new Angular code and and uh, spur some thoughts that that will be helpful for you as you're, you're building new Angular apps. Awesome. Um, the the leadership books and stuff make me want to pick like ten more books, but I will refrain. I will I will save them for another show. Save them for another show, but but email them to me or send them to me on <laughs> Skype because uh, I'd I'd love to know what what you're reading because it it really is it's a whole new way to think when you're thinking about how to how to uh, mobilize and and excite a group behind a common goal. Yeah, I will share just one kind of two. Uh, the, that I recently read, I recently read The Go-Giver and The Go-Giver Leader by Bob Berg and some other guy. And they are really good books. So Very cool. And they're really short, which is also nice. So um, they, they kind of tell, tell a story, kind of a parable. Um, they, they call out the points pretty explicitly um, and give you some fictional examples of somebody living out the ideas, but they're terrific. So... I'll throw that in there too. You get a bonus. You got like seven picks from me today. <laughs> Very cool. If I remember right, we we did a 15 minute chat, which I do for listeners. You can go to devchat.tv slash 15 minutes if you want to do that. Yeah, yeah. We had a 15 minute chat where we talked about uh, uh, ES6 and all the cool stuff that was going on there about a year and a half ago. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, I know. You weren't able to make it, but I did have a good time on the last episode chatting with uh, Ward and Lucas and and John about um, applying pragmatic principles um, to the ever changing world of JavaScript and, and Angular development. So that was uh, I had a lot of fun recording that episode as well. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, we'll have another story for you next week. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance, and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com.